Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I'm creating a tribe of tech entrepreneurs that are on a mission to do something big and meaningful. I invite you to join the tribe as well, especially if you want to create change that matters and put your software business on momentum that you're proud of. The goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast this week is Radhika Dood, author of Radical Product Thinking. It's not that companies don't have a vision. You can have varying degrees of good visions. But I think to your point, you know, you were saying it's it's incredible how expensive it is when your vision isn't quite right or you haven't uncovered these misalignments. And the cost of not having this alignment, this is what really kind of keeps coming up in organizations. You see it at every step where somehow your vision becomes disconnected and you start running into what I call product diseases, which is where, you know, innovation kind of dies on the vine, right? And that's really the cost of not starting with a deep enough, detailed enough vision. This is Radhika. She's an entrepreneur and product leader who has participated in four acquisitions two of which were companies that she founded. She's an advisor on product thinking to the Monetary Authority of Singapore, Singapore's financials regulator and central bank. She teaches entrepreneurship and innovation at Northeastern's Damore McKim School of Business and is an advisor to several startups. She graduated from MIT with a Bachelor of Science and a Master of Engineering in Electrical Engineering and speaks nine languages, currently learning her 10th. Radhika co-founded Radical Product Thinking as a movement of leaders creating vision-driven change. She was on my podcast in December 2019 as a consequence of that. Recently, she released her book Radical Product Thinking, and that was the perfect reason to interview her again. We explore what's broken in the way that we build software products and the challenges that lead to excessive cost, compromised growth potential, demotivated teams, and so on. We discuss in detail how you can recognize looming problems and what you can do differently to fix them once and forever. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, the methodology to create a remarkable vision and translate it into everyday action. Secondly, what signals to look for to understand whether you have a sizable innovation problem. Thirdly, the simple framework to avoid vision depth in your organization and how to empower everyone to successfully apply it. And fourthly, how to engineer a culture of innovation by approaching it as if it was a product. Well, hi Radhika, welcome back on my podcast. 
Thank you for having me again. Our last conversation was great and I'm excited to be here again. Yeah, well, I mean, what you're doing is is interesting me to a great deal. I mean, he actually also kind of appeared in my in my own book. And well, I saw recently on LinkedIn that you were announcing that your book is finally getting ready to go to market. 28th of September, it's there. Immediately bought a Kindle and yeah, reached out to you to see whether we could do another session of this to discuss like what has changed and where things are, where people really need to focus on. So oh, thank you, thank for being you so here. much. And I'm thrilled at how it came out. <laughs> exactly. Well, just to kind of for everybody to refresh their minds, people want, that want to go back to the earlier edition. It was launched in December of 19, so no, almost two years ago now, definitely for, the, for when we recorded the interview. A little bit about yourself. I mean, one question I ask these days is if you have to just define yourself as a person, entrepreneur, what would be the, the, the one or two or three words that define you? Oh, words that define me. Oh, dear. Let's see. A few words to define me. One would be thoughtful, determined, and it's hard to find just a few words, right? This is good enough. Thoughtful and determined. Like, it brings you far. <laughs> I think the third one I would say is vision-driven. Is a compound word allowed? <laughs> no, that's vision-driven. And I mean, that really aligns as a perfect bridge to watch your book as well. Because what I read between the lines is that your book, The Radical Product Thinking, actually is offering software companies, technology companies, a methodology for being vision-driven. So it must say a lot about yourself. Thank you. I think it's been through hard lessons that I guess I've yeah. arrived at being vision-driven. And it's, it's been this cumulative set of experiences over the past you know, more than 20 years that I've tried to compile into one book to give us kind of a methodical approach to be vision-driven. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to kind of start with the problem, I mean, you've been there for 20 years. I've also come a long way in the, uh, in the business software industry, being in product management and product marketing and sort of everything in between that. I've also come to, of course, being part of that evolution of agile and seeing a lot of these technology come and go. And one of the things that you indeed say is that the mantra is typically for companies that are in innovation, fail fast, learn fast, go, go, go. What's wrong with that? Yeah, you know, the biggest thing that I've seen is, despite, you know, all these new methodologies coming about over the last 20 years, fundamentally, we haven't really changed how we build products. It's not that today, there are, there's a higher rate of success of products that go to market or a higher rate of success of startups, right? So clearly, if it's not that these methodologies are bad, but it just made me realize that we're missing something more fundamental. And a lot of the business books, methodologies, etc., that I've seen focus on this approach of how can we go fast or how can we go faster? And it's focused on this approach of, you know, how can we do this approach of trial and error and iterate faster to be able to get to a good product market fit. And that I think is the challenge, right? What we haven't had is a methodology that really helps us translate a vision into everyday action. And that's the fundamental difference between being iteration-led versus being vision-driven. We haven't had a methodology to teach us, you know, what does it mean to have a really good vision? Like, we know that you know, we heartily believe that we have to have a good vision, right? But what does that actually mean? And then, you know, it's not that 
companies don't have a vision often. It's just, you know, often that vision doesn't feature in everyday decisions. How do you actually make it feature in everyday decisions? And that step-by-step guide is what I realized was missing. And so given that over the last 20 years, the rate of success of companies or products, given that that hasn't fundamentally changed, it it shows that this aspect is missing. And my goal was to really solve that through this book and, and through the methodology. You reach it, or you touched upon a couple of very interesting things in itself, and I, I see that on a day-to-day basis as well. You know, in your description of the book, it says toss away or toss out everything you know about good vision. And I mean, it's of course that's an intriguing thing, and that's, and that's what I love. But I see that as well. There's a lot of companies out there that that say they have a vision, but yeah, it might be a vision to them, but it's all about them and not about that thing that makes it a good vision. It's about, for example, we want to become a $1 billion company. We want to become the leader in all of those type of approaches. I mean, what is your definition of a good vision? And you're so spot on. This vision of you know being a billion-dollar company or, or your own personal goals and what you want to achieve or what you want the company to achieve, right? As opposed to, for me, a good vision is one where even if you took yourself out of the picture altogether – A vision is a good vision is one where you see a problem in the world that you want to see solved. And even if you're not in the picture, you'd be happy to see that problem solved. Then you know you have a good vision. And so a good vision has to be something that's really detailed where you articulate what is that problem you want to see solved. You know, the other kind of a vision that we're taught we should have, right, is one that is big, aspirational, where your vision is, they often call it the big, hairy, audacious goal, like, you know, empowering humans to do something or, you know, to revolutionize wireless. And honestly, I say revolutionize wireless because this was our vision. 20 years ago for a startup that I had, right? And if you say, what does that actually mean? You know, you would be exactly right. Like we were really, we'd caught this disease I was, I will call pivotitis because we kept changing directions along the way because revolutionizing wireless is just such a big, broad vision. You don't know kind of how do you translate that into reality? And so a problem statement type of a vision is one where you answer five questions. You answer, whose world are you trying to change? What does their world look like? Meaning, what exactly is their problem and what are they doing today? The third is, why is that status quo unacceptable? Because, you know, let's face it, maybe that status quo is okay. And in that case, there's no reason for your product to exist. The fourth question then is, when will you know that you've arrived? And that describes what is the end state of the world when you've solved the problem. And then finally, this is where you can get to your solution. You can talk about how will you bring about this world? And so a good vision covers the who, what, why, when, and how. Yeah, true. Hold on. Love that. It's simple to digest. And it's, that's where so many things do, just go wrong. I mean, I talk about it in my own book as well. And it's so costly. And you say it's like too many people think that this vision, because it's always been around the big, hairy, audacious goal, is fluffy, you know, and therefore don't do anything at all. I mean, do you have an estimate about the number of companies that have a vision and and don't? And have you been doing some research around that? You know, it's hard for me to even share such research because what happens is whenever I've ever done this exercise with companies or teams, 
It has never been a futile exercise to go through the who, what, why, when, and how. Like you start to answer these questions and you realize how much misalignment there was within the team, right? So it's not that companies don't have a vision. You can have varying degrees of good visions. But I think to your point, you know, you were saying it's, it's incredible how expensive it is when your vision isn't quite right or you haven't uncovered these misalignments. Because, you know, having this sort of a discussion about your vision, when I facilitate session, it takes us like maybe an hour, at most two hours for the entire team. And by the end, we've answered these really deep and profound questions and we leave feeling more aligned, right? And the cost of not having this alignment This is what really kind of keeps coming up in organizations. You see it at every step where somehow your vision becomes disconnected and you start running into what I call product diseases, which is where, you know, innovation kind of dies on the vine, right? And that's really the cost of not starting with a deep enough, detailed enough vision. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's going back to this mantra, fail fast, learn fast. I mean, fail fast on what, you know? (laughs) Then it becomes like throwing spaghetti at the wall. Hopefully it will stick at some point in time, which I see so often happening. You know, This is what we need to develop. Go develop it. Nobody understands why it's been developed, who is asked for it, what problem is going to solve and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, exactly yeah, just, right. just a little bit of a fresh up around the diseases that you're talking about because it's, it's been coming up now for, for well, three or four times. And I think I, I actually mentioned a couple of them in my book as well. Yeah, because I saw a couple of them myself, and I've been guilty of a couple of them myself. Like a sh- uh, which are the most important ones? Let's see. Maybe I'll start with some diseases that I see commonly in bigger companies, and I'll okay. talk about okay. some that startups encounter very often. So maybe a couple that I see very often, especially in startups, and, and there's a slightly different version of this in bigger companies, is the disease pivotitis, right? So pivotitis is where you try one strategy after another. And, you know, just a few sentences ago, you were saying how fail fast, learn fast, but what exactly are you failing and what are you learning? That, that's the main problem with pivotitis. Pivotitis is where you aren't quite sure on what the vision is. So you keep trying different things. And so you may fail, but it's not clear what have you learned along the way. And as a startup, right, the reality is it's not that pivoting is bad, but you have literally two to three pivots before you run out of money or momentum. And you have to use those two to three pivots wisely. And the more of these pivots you use, you know, unnecessarily, the lower your chances of success as a startup in itself. So when you start with a really clear vision, you try to avoid pivotitis as much as possible. And when you do pivot, right, you can point to having a new vision. You, You may make edits to that vision and say, you know, here's what we learned from our failure. Here's, you know, the new vision because of what we learned. And now it's not pivotitis because you're taking this pivot with enough gravitas. You know, what is the this next hypothesis of what it is you're trying to prove out. So that's pivotitis. The version in of pivotitis in larger companies is where I've often seen every sprint become a pivot because when you are targeting a very wide range of customers with your product, each set of customers has a different idea of what your product should do or what is their most urgent need. And so each customer pulls you in a different direction. And so you pivot from one sprint to another. So sometimes in bigger companies, you see this as well. 
Another example of product disease that's very common, in, especially in startups, is where you get obsessive sales disorder, yeah. where you know, you're trying to find product market fit. So you ask customers, what is it that you want? And then you're trying to build what customers are asking for, right? And exactly. in theory, it sounds good. The problem is that when you don't have a clear vision for who exactly is that customer, what is the problem you're solving in the world? Each customer leads you in a different direction. And so instead of being customer driven, you become customer led. And obsessive sales disorder is basically where you completely lose sight of your vision and it's all about just short-term gains instead exactly. of the longer-term vision. I've um, seen that in action. <laughs> and this is one that it's hard for startups. I've honestly contributed to this disease too, right? And so, which is why it's so important to talk openly about them. Well, one of the things, of course, that has got to do with that is with the thing that you mentioned earlier, you know, the pivotitis part. If you are having to pivot two or three times, you don't have the bandwidth or the money anymore to do it. Same is true, of course, for the other thing is that, yeah, but we have to, we have to fund the short term in order to survive the long term. So we need that income of that customer to be able to pay the wages. I've heard that so often. And, you know, it is absolutely a fair argument. So it's not to say that we should never make this trade-off. It's just how often do you make this trade-off sure. of long-term versus the short-term. And one of the ways that I deal with this question is I think about our decisions on two axes, right? So every decision or priority that you make, it's based on your, let's say your Y-axis is your vision and whether it's a good vision fit or not. And your X-axis is survival. So is this helping you survive or not? And so things that are good for your vision and helping you survive, that is of course, you know, ideal. Those are the easy decisions that, oh yeah, of course we should do this. The harder decisions are the ones where you're having to maybe invest in the vision. This is where it's a good vision fit, but it's not helping you survive. This is where you go and refactor code for three months, or maybe you do a lot of user interviews so that you go figure out what it is you need to build, right? And True. you're not, it's good for the vision, but it's not helping you short term. And the opposite quadrant of that is where you're building vision debt. It's like technical debt, but yeah. where it's taking you further away from your vision, but it's helping you short term. And so building vision debt is where you're starting to take on a little bit of this obsessive sales disorder where, you know, maybe a customer is asking you for this custom feature. It's helping you survive. It's helping you win a big deal, but maybe it's not good for your vision, right? True. And so none of these quadrants are bad per se, but you start to observe by plotting each feature that you take on in these different quadrants, you start to notice a pattern. You start to say, oh, you know what? We are really taking on a lot of obsessive sales disorder or we're taking on a lot of vision debt here. And as a company, you know, nobody can, by the way, tell you whether this is the right amount of vision debt you're taking on or not. It has to be based on kind of, you know, maybe you're during, during this pandemic, your only hope is to do all of these features to be able to survive. And if that's what you need to do, that is what you need to do. But at least by talking about it and having these conversations with your team, you're telling your team that you're taking on vision debt. What's the purpose of this vision debt? It's not a top-down loss of confidence in your vision and you're just kind of drifting. And that's the most important part of this kind of communication where you talk about this trade-off between your vision and the short business needs. Let me make a small interruption here. Radhika just gave an excellent remark of the framework to support balanced decision-making about what goes in your product roadmap and what not. Every idea or requirement typically can look like a great idea, 
but can derail you from achieving your long-term goals at the same time. It's in your ability to see the bigger picture that will allow you to make the right decision. And remarkable software companies master this trait. They have the ability to focus on the essence like no one else. This helps them to stay resourceful and turn that into an ability to fuel their momentum. And you can master these traits as well. I have two options for you to start. First, read or listen to my book, The Remarkable Effect. You can find that on Amazon.com. Secondly, get into action right away and surround yourself with a group of like-minded people, tech founders and CEOs that will help you deliver on your top priorities with more impact. By removing your blind spots, challenging you to explore new paths and sharpening your thinking. How? Just visit valueinspiration.com and see the videos where many of your peers share their experiences about our tribe and what they've come to value most. Back to the interview. Well said, and I think a very practical advice in terms of how to go about it. And I think it's it's indeed in the clarification of this to the rest of the team, because I mean, everybody in the, in the organization will, of course, have a different agenda. The salesperson wants to have a target that's being paid and we need to survive. And then, there, of course, there's people that want to protect the vision. But it's like, yeah, it's, it's that trade-off in terms of are we doing the right things together. And, exactly. Yeah. And it's having that communication so that, you know, as a leader, very often you're asked, well, what is the right trade-off, right? And you're asked to dictate what is the priority. Whereas once you start having these decisions plotted on an X and Y axis, and you talk about, you know, here's which quadrant it is in, and therefore I think we should or should not do it. Now you're communicating your intuition as opposed to just telling your team what your final decision is. And this is how, you know, as a leader, we can take on a more strategic role and communicate our intuition so that, you know, instead of micromanaging and having to be in every single meeting and give those decisions to our teams top down, we communicate our intuition and help teams make decisions like we would and know what are the right trade-offs without our having to be in every meeting. Exactly. Yeah. That, that is, again, that's about scale, creating scale and not becoming the bottleneck in this, in this kind of stuff, which of course is about empowering people and, and yeah, giving them an opportunity to contribute to the success. If the vision is there clear as well, and everybody's aligned on that, that can become a, like a flywheel rather than having everybody waiting. Like, what is it? What is the big guy going to say? And it was your decision because you told me. <laughs> Exactly. And this kind of autonomy, right, where you feel like you're empowered makes you so much more productive. It makes you feel like you have the ability to make a difference, to actually feel like you're making a contribution by making these trade-offs in your world. It gives you that feeling of, you know, it, it helps motivate people as opposed to the micromanaging leaders who are dictating every bit of these trade-offs, whether you're a software developer or, you know, an HR person, right? Completely agree. So no vision, you get a lot of diseases. Then there's the, the thing that you should forget about, well, about what is a good vision. So we just highlighted that, the, the who, the, the what, why, the when, and the how. It also kind of, you, your book describes how to divine, define vision. And the, you're talking about five steps there, vision, strategy, prioritization, execution, and culture. How does it all fit together? Because I, mean, I think it's, of course, the framework for how to kind of keep it going. But is there anything that you want to kind of want to add to that? Yeah, so we talked about vision and I just talked about prioritization, this trade-off of vision versus survival, right? So that's how you bring your vision into your everyday decisions. 
maybe I'll talk a little bit about strategy and what I mean by execution and measurement and culture as well. So one of the things about translating a vision into reality is we need that vision to next be translated in, into a set of actionable items. So when I say yeah, strategy, right, everyone knows, yes, we need strategy, but what does that mean exactly? So when it comes to a good product strategy, to me, it has to answer four questions. So the first question is, you know, what makes someone come to your product? What's the pain that they're experiencing that makes them come to your product? The next is your solution. So what is the solution that you have to this pain? The third is, what capabilities do you need to be able to deliver on the promise of this solution? So this is basically where you can talk about either technical infrastructure or business partnerships, etc. And then finally, the last question is logistics, meaning how will you deliver the solution to your customers? This is where you think about, you know, your sales channel, your training plan, how you're going to support your product, et cetera. This last point is very often what is completely left off of a whole product strategy. And this becomes something that's, that's a bit of an afterthought. Oh, you know, first let's build the product, then we'll figure out how to price it and monetize it. Or let's build the product, then we'll figure out how to support it, right? But then in the meanwhile, you've built some something where your entire pricing strategy may not quite be aligned with what what the product actually needs in terms of support. So these four questions of strategy, this is where, you know, once you start thinking about strategy with these four questions, you realize, you know, wait a minute, it's really hard to iterate and try different things on each of those four elements without kind of thinking about, you know, what's my, without even having this sort of stake in the ground for answers to those four questions, right? This is why your strategy, you can think about it like a hypothesis. This is your best guess as you're starting out. You answer the que- those four questions and then your execution and measurement is how you actually prove out whether the strategy is working or not. And so for each of these elements of your strategy, you say, well, you know, in terms of execution, what all do I need to do to execute on it? That's your kind of list of activities. But even more importantly, how will I know if it's working or not? So what metrics will I measure to know if the strategy is working? And this is where, you know, when we're iteration led, very often the way we measure success is we say, oh, you know, the most popular ways of measuring success is revenues, the amount of time users spend on site, the average daily users, all of these are popular metrics. But once you lay out your strategy at this level of detail, now you have a different set of metrics that are really right for your business, right? You look at your strategy and you say, you know, what metrics will show me whether the strategy is working or not. And that's the real set of metrics that you need to be measuring so that you know what you need to change in your strategy, what's working or not working. So that was that's where execution and measurement comes in. So now I've talked about vision, the strategy, prioritization, execution and measurement. And the last thing I'll talk about is culture. Culture. You know, yeah, so all of these ideas of vision, strategy, execution, measurement, priorities, all of these are ideas that we can apply to engineering our culture as if it's a product, right? Let's start with what are the problems when we try to engineer a culture? The first thing is, you know, we know that you have to have a good vision 
to be able to build a product. But what's your vision for culture? One of the hardest problems is, and this is why, you know, any culture change effort in a company is just met with so many eye rolls. It's because you say, well, what's your vision for culture? Oh, I want to create a transparent culture, an open culture. But really, what does that mean? What problem are you solving, right? And so in the book, I talk about how we can really understand culture in terms of how we experience it. I talk about a vision for culture that's much more detailed, that breaks our, that, that breaks down culture into something that's much more tangible. Do you want to get into that? Should we talk about Yeah, sure. Culture? I mean, because I believe culture is extremely important and having okay. the right culture, of course, because culture can also break your organization. Exactly. Okay, so here's the, the new way of thinking about, uh, about culture that I discovered over the years, right? What we experience in organizational culture, we can really think about our cumulative days experienced on two dimensions. So the way we experience our day is stuff is either fulfilling or it's not fulfilling. And stuff is either urgent or it's not urgent. So yeah. stuff that's fulfilling and it's not urgent, that quadrant to me is the meaningful work quadrant. This is work where you have the mental, emotional bandwidth to be able to think about purposeful stuff. You're really, a lot of the radical product thinking stuff that I've talked about, where you have a vision, strategy, et cetera, you're thinking about things, you feel like you're making a contribution, that's meaningful work. And so sure. the more time you spend in that quadrant, you know, you're happy at work. There is... The next quadrant where work is fulfilling, but it feels very urgent. This is the heroism quadrant, right? This is where you're firefighting issues for customers. Yeah. You know, you have an urgent something that's come up that needs to be fixed. Like you're rescuing a customer, rescuing your colleague, all of this stuff. It, it is fulfilling and it adds a little bit of spice to your day. But if you have a day filled with heroism, you're exhausted and exactly. it's, just, it's just too much, right? You're on the fast path to burnout. The next quadrant is the quadrant where work is not fulfilling and it is urgent. So this is the stuff that I call organizational cactus. This is like having to do all the paperwork, you know, like let's say you need to order a new laptop and you have to do like a ton of paperwork to be able to order this new laptop. True. Or, you know, you're working in a big company to make these small decisions. You have to get all these stakeholders on board. It's just exhausting, right? It's like walking through this cactus field. You just do it slowly and painfully. And so that's organizational cactus. And the last quadrant, which is the most dangerous quadrant, is the soul-sucking quadrant. This is work that's not fulfilling and it's not urgent. It's like this low-grade fever that just keeps going. This is where, yeah. you know, you have to self-censor because, you know, you can't speak up. There'll be repercussions where work feels unfair. Sure. You know, if there are, there's a pay gap at work, for example, that you're experiencing, that's, that feels soul-sucking, right? And so these four quadrants are where we spend most of our time at work. Like True. if you are loving work, you're spending more of your time in meaningful work and less time in the other three. Yep. But it's not that the other three quadrants are zero. It's just most of your time is spent in meaningful work, right? And so a vision for a good work culture is where you're maximizing meaningful work quadrant and you figure out how to minimize the other three. And that's where your strategy comes in. As a team, you start to talk about, you know, what is making us spend time in these other three bad toxic quadrants, right? And how can we reduce that time? Like identifying problems that makes us spend time in those quadrants. So that's your strategy. 
So now you can build a plan to address those quadrants. You then prioritize it. And then finally, in terms of execution and measurement, you know, as you work on creating those changes so that you can reduce the size of those quadrants, you can also measure things along the way. This is, you know, based on simple surveys that you can do with just even like four or five questions that people answer on a weekly basis to get a pulse to say, you know, are we making progress towards this or is it all, you know, just making no difference, right? And then course correcting. And so these same ideas of vision, strategy, prioritization and execution and measurement, you apply that to your culture to think about your product, to think about your culture like a product. And you can make meaningful changes and have a culture that really helps innovation. Yeah. And you can almost like the moment you got both, it becomes like one plus one equals three. Because you can have a fantastic vision and everything in place around the product side, but the organizational culture is the wrong one. It won't fly. And there will be people that have burnout. There will be people that that are leaving the company. You got a lot of, if you have an issue retaining people and hiring and and actually getting them in. So do you see that as well, that that the two strengthen each other? Exactly. They absolutely do. And I mentioned this in my book as well, where, you know, a lot of these ideas of vision, strategy, prioritization, you know, that requires that sort of communication in the team where you can hear different voices and the sum of our voices help us have a better vision, a better strategy. This is not something that just one person has the best ideas, right? And the moment you have a great work culture where you have psychological safety, where you're able to communicate and gel together as a team and contribute ideas, et cetera, right? That really makes your entire process of translating vision all the way into action just so much better. And so they absolutely reinforce each other. I love to hear that. Well, that's great to hear. And uh, I mean, I spent a lot of time on my, in my previous book, spent some time on culture, currently writing my second one, which is about remarkable resilience. That's where it's a big topic as well. And I see exactly the same thing that you do. Now, the way we started was that I interviewed you about two years ago, pre-COVID. So what I actually yeah, want to ask is that in your in writing the, the book and, f- and finalizing it, how has the whole pandemic influenced the topics in the book? Have you have you adjusted things? If so, and if so, where? It's been really relevant both before and after the pandemic. But you're right that the pandemic actually helped influence some of this as well. I think the pandemic in itself really uncovered so much. It really unmasked in so many places the need for being vision driven, right? And I'll give you an example. What I realized was, you know, in many countries, you can throw money at a problem, but without a vision, you know, you didn't see the same kind of success. And I'll go into a little bit of what I mean. Maybe first, let me start from a corporate perspective before I go into the public sector. From the corporate perspective, the reason this is so relevant during the pandemic and afterwards is, you know, the pandemic fundamentally shifted so many of our businesses, right? And the kind of vision that we may have had two years ago may need to be adjusted. One of the main things that I really wanted us to think about when I was writing this book is, you know, we've always thought about a vision having to be unchanging. Once you write a vision, this is your vision for life, right? And that's not the case. One of the most important things is, to me, vision is something that you revisit. If you're a startup, you revisit it very regularly. Like, you know, if you're an early stage startup, you may need to revisit it every single month because you're learning so much. 
that you may need to come back and say, you know, is this still valid based on everything that I've learned? If you're a mature company, maybe you revisit it like once every six months or once every year. And the pandemic really highlighted the importance of coming back to your vision and, you know, making course corrections or changes to that as needed and communicating it to your team, especially because, you know, everyone has been remote. We often, you know, companies often want to bring all their team back together into the office because, We feel like that's how, you know, this togetherness comes in the sense of team and purpose, but really that's not happening for a long time. And whether you're in person or remote, what brings us purpose is this clarity of vision. And that can come from going through these discussions of having a very clear who, what, why, when, and how, and writing a radical vision statement that I talk about in the book. So that's an important thing to do. But the second thing, you know, if we look at the public sector, it really reinforced the idea that anything can be your product if it's your mechanism in the world. And that the way we can bring change, you cannot just bring that about by throwing money at the problem, that you have nope. to start with a good vision. And, you know, I was living in Singapore at the time. I'm now back in the U.S., when the pandemic started and I was observing the difference in how Singapore dealt with the pandemic early on versus the U.S. response to it, right? And the difference was fascinating. So the U.S. was throwing money at the problem in the sense that we were trying to get early vaccines developed. So there were lots of subsidies given out to the pharma industry to be able to build these vaccines. But where there was a vision lacking was you know, having early testing, being able to track all cases, doing contact tracing, all of those early interventions, which would have prevented the kind of case count and the number of just unnecessary deaths that happened in our country. It really was sad to see that we lacked the vision at the time to be able to control the pandemic really early. And we lacked the communication, right? We were throwing money at the problem, but it was not vision driven. Uh, And I'll compare this to Singapore. In Singapore, there was very clear communication right from the start. At the start, when it wasn't clear that the disease was airborne, Singapore, the prime minister said, you know, please do not go and buy masks because we need them for all the healthcare workers. So at, at the moment, we don't have evidence that it's airborne. So just hang tight. But here's what we do want you to do. Right. So there was that sort of communication. There was trust in the government that they were doing the right things. Right away, they got contact tracing and, you know, quarantining going. They made a very, they put out a clear messages on, you know, not going into work if you're experiencing any sort of a symptom any company that forced their employees to come into work you know right away like they were giving given exemplary punishment they gave leave like medical leave for two weeks to even to people who were freelancers or contract workers just so that they didn't go into office because they needed the money right and spread disease True. And so there was a very clear vision and communication right at the start. And so what was interesting for me is what that led to over time, which was, you know, even if you look at when lockdowns were necessary in the U.S., because of that lack of communication, there was so much anger over lockdowns in a lot of places. 
In Singapore, they didn't call it a lockdown. They called it a circuit breaker just to communicate the reason behind the lockdown, right? And they set out clear metrics. They said, okay, for us to come out of lockdown, we need to have fewer than 10 cases a day. And the government every day was putting out a number of cases and telling people exactly how are we doing and moving towards this measurement or this success criteria, right? And so the point is, it's not just about throwing money at a problem that we need a really clear vision and communication to be able to bring our whole team with us on the journey. And the sure. pandemic really highlights kind of how much we need the whole team and people with us on the journey. So whether you're in the public sector, nonprofit, or you're working in the corporate world with a product team, those same principles apply. We need to bring people with us on the journey. And that means communicating a clear vision, clear strategy, a plan for execution and measurement, right? And crafting the kind of culture that we need so that we can bring everyone with us and, and succeed in innovating. Well said, well said. And great examples, by the way. And what I also see, I've interviewed a great number of people now, CEOs of B2B software companies. And yeah, that, I agree with you on, on the need for vision. And the ones that really had a clear vision came out stronger, not only because well, they realized at the end what business they're really in. And that's about solving that problem. And the fact that the, well, the problem often didn't even change, but it was the how do you get there? And of course, everything with COVID changed in terms of where people were, how they were doing work. So it was not the vision that changed in many cases, but like the realization that the approach towards that needed to change. And everybody, of course, can then start to kind of resonate with that and apply the right, the right type of decisions. So yeah, it's, it's the clear thing that came out of my research as well. And it proves again how important it is to not only in crisis situations bounce back up, but actually come out stronger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are the things that you mentioned Earlier on, in the, in a, when we have a pre-conversation around this, it's related to the diseases in which I want to kind of pick up on. We talked about the diseases in our initial podcast in 2019. Has anything changed around that side? You were talking about something that goes beyond the company's walls. Yeah. So by the way, so, you know, I only mentioned two diseases. I realized there are seven diseases in total that I talk about in the book. Talk about it for that. hours. It's, uh, what was that? We can talk about this for hours. Exactly, but, but <laughs> yeah. name them. That, that's a good one. I'll just name them. We won't get into the details. Narcissist complex. This is where, you know, we focus on our own needs instead of, and, and features that we think the customer is going to need as opposed to what the, thinking about it from the customer's perspective and what they actually need, right? There is locked-in syndrome where something has worked in the past and so we're really locked into just continuing to make that work like why change what's not broken there's strategic swelling which is where you know our product just grows and grows and grows until we just it's so bloated we no longer recognize it and there's hero syndrome which is so common to startups which is where we are focused on scale and being big the idea of go big or go home that we forget to work on the actual problem that we're working on so those are the few of the diseases that i mentioned in the book but you know in terms of kind of the way these diseases they're the manifestation of an iteration led model in our companies but if you say, well, what's the manifestation of this iteration-led model on society? And if we take a more global perspective, like where do we see this iteration-led approach having an effect? 
I've been starting to call this digital pollution where, you know, our products and this approach to taking this iteration led approach to build products, it really causes collateral damage to society. And I call that digital pollution. So, you know, there are five types of digital pollution that I've outlined in the book that I've, you know, started to recognize over the last, you know, decade. One of the most important ones is we've been increasing inequality in the world through our products, whether it's through business practices, for example, a lot of the labor laws, if we think about Amazon and our use of labor that's creating an increasing inequality in society. We're creating increasing ideological polarization through, you know, whether it's social media, our algorithms, etc. We've been eroding privacy through our products. You know, it's become so much easier to track people. And erosion of privacy really just affects democracy. You know, each of these elements basically affects democracy. The more inequality there is in society, the harder it is to sustain democracy. There's more resentment across groups. Same for ideological polarization. You know, it's harder to get people to talk and it's harder for democracy to survive. So one other example is the misinformation that we've created where, you know, it's so easy to find information, but it's hard to gain knowledge where you can look up all sorts of stuff, but you just don't know, even if you're trying to do your research, it's hard to know what's fact and what's not. We look at the first page of Google as mostly truth, right? 95% of us look at the first page of Google. So if you can spend enough money on doing the right amount of SEO, etc., the first page can truly represent truth for 95% of the population. Exactly. So these are all really important in eroding democracy and ways that our products often accidentally create digital pollution. It's not like we maliciously go out saying, oh, you know, this is what we want to go do in the world and how we want. It's not the villains, you know, that we see in the Bond movies that are trying to do this, right? But we accidentally include these forms of pollution in our products without really thinking about how it's affecting society. And that's where we need this thoughtful approach to building products where we're thinking about what's the change we want to bring to the world. And our product is only a mechanism to be able to bring that change to the world. Do it in a responsible way. I recently spoke to one of the members of my tribe, Scott Sandland, who was also on the podcast, by the way. And he mentioned that as well. He said when they invented a car, they also invented the car accident. And if you think about it from that perspective, you're bringing something to the world that is going to be revolutionary, and, but you're also responsible for the negative effects of that. And I think that's, yeah, every company is, yeah, need to be held to that responsibility and, and do it in a way that... Yeah, that and you know, I've been thinking so much about what you mentioned about responsibility, right? And I think very often we think about it as every company needing to be responsible, but I was thinking about how the company, the structure of the corporate entity was created, right? The structure of this corporate entity itself was created to avoid responsibility and avoid legal responsibility. So, you know, I think, yes, we need corporate responsibility, but I want to take it a level deeper for the Uh audience. I think it's every one of us who is 
within that company, right? Every one of us has to think about that responsibility and how are we contributing to digital pollution in the world? You know, if you're a software developer in the audience, you have a choice of where to work. When you choose to work at Facebook, you are making a choice in the world in terms of what you want to contribute to. You know, very often the free market analogy is, well, people will vote with their dollar, right? And the more consolidation there is in the tech industry, the harder it is for people to vote with their dollar. But the reality is with the labor market, the way it is right now, you get to vote with your labor. You get to vote for kind of whether, what kind of a world you want to create. And that's where you can exert your choice and decide where you want to work. I think these are beautiful ways, words to end this conversation because that's a spot on and it's, it's bringing the whole circle back. You know, it starts with the vision. It's bringing, bringing people together to kind of create the energy and the excitement to kind of deliver that vision. But at the end, we have to do it in a responsible way. And that's, that's yeah, a responsibility for all of us individuals. Thank you for this, Radhika. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a fun conversation and I think we covered so much ground. Exactly, exactly. So we're really looking forward to, uh, to the book to really arrive. And yeah, I mean, recommend everybody that's serious about creating innovation, as we call it, to kind of really give a good meaning behind that word. Yeah, and just for the audience, the book is Radical Product Thinking, The New Mindset for Innovating Smarter. It's on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and any bookstore near you. And it comes out on September 28th. Exactly. Thank you very much. And this ends my conversation with Radhika. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Radhika Dut, author of Radical Product Thinking. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. 
Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.